Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Coming up on today's show, preparations continue for the Queen's funeral this Monday. We'll speak with security expert Christian Luprecht as to just what might be going on in that country right now. Evidence shows that the majority of Canadians have likely caught COVID, so what does that mean? And it's very late, but it looks like we may finally be getting our review into the legalization of cannabis. Um, okay, we're going to talk about what's going on right now in London. I, I, I can't imagine. It should be very, very interesting. So we're going to chat now with Christian Luprecht, who's a professor at the Royal Military College and Queen's University, editor of the Canadian Military Journal and author of Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft, published by Oxford University Press. Christian, thank you so much for joining us. Always nice to chat. Shay, good morning. Okay, uh, what's going on in London right now? It, it, uh, to me, I can't think of anything else that would rise to a security operation of this size. Can you, is this the biggest security operation, at least in modern times? Yeah, I mean, it's significant. Um, the London Olympics would have been significant. Um, but the United Kingdom has the, has two advantages here. One is that this is an operation that was literally decades in the planning uh, for yeah. this type of event. So you kind of pull out the plan and you roll out the plan. The biggest challenge for your plan, as with any of these plans, is always surge capacity, that there's simply not enough P- not enough police officers and intelligence officials around that, uh, that you can deploy. Ploy. The other advantage that the United Kingdom has, um, unfortunately, in this regard, is, of course, a decades-long um, close history with terrorism sure. of various kinds. Um, and that London has always been a target by a number of groups, as have uh, British politicians. And so um, uh, MI5, MI6, uh, the Metropolitan Police uh, the National Crime Agency, these are all agencies that are postured with sort of a very keen appreciation of the current threat environment. So it's not just about the immediate tactical response to, under, to in, in, in this situation. It's also about having a domain awareness of what possible threats you might be facing, because ultimately you really want to make sure you intervene and risk mitigate any of those threats um, before they before. could ever manifest themselves. That's what I wanted to ask you. So there's been work uh, from the moment she passed, I'm sure, and they started putting plans in. I'm sure, secu- you know, in terms of logistics and making sure that it goes off, part of hand in hand, there's been a huge security operation being planned right alongside of that. So, so what's been going on for the last week? What kind of work began almost immediately? So you'd be collating what the threat environment might look like. Uh, you'd be looking at who also would be traveling to this type of event, who might be posing a, um, who might be who might be a target for uh, for any aggrieved or other um, other groups. Anybody who would be trying uh, to capitalize on this to send a message or so. Uh, so understanding the 
external threats in this case, so people trying to come into the country, internal threats that might be emanating from individuals or from groups um, uh, or from anyone's sort of particular type of, uh, of community. Um, and you'd also be liaising closely with your allies and partners because under these sorts of circumstances, it's sort of all hands on deck uh, to understand sort of what the threat environment might look like. And then you would want to posture yourself effectively um, so you want to have um, not just a visible presence as a deterrence uh, but you also want to have um, a civilian presence of people who mix in with the crowds um, and be able to uh, to identify sort of challenges you might face the biggest challenge is probably and we've seen the United Kingdom do this particularly well um, is uh, on the one hand a capacity to respond and isolate a threat mm -hmm. should something arise and the other is to coordinate, for instance, among the transport system and um, among the road system. Um, and, and here the United Kingdom has, unfortunately, again, um, a lot of experience, but much of this is also uh, making sure that if there was an event uh, that you can isolate that without that having, uh, um, having, to, uh, uh, having any sort of spillover effects that, uh, that might um, ruin or uh, otherwise sort of affect the uh, the somber posture uh, in place. So as you said, all hands on deck, and I imagine that includes Canadian security officials and Canadian police officials and from all over the world, right? Exactly. How, how does that work? Is there one person in charge or how does everybody know what's going on? So that's difficult. So yes, so other countries can assist here, but other countries uh, don't have sworn law enforcement duties in the United Kingdom. Sure. Yeah. So they wouldn't be able to arrest individuals. They can provide, for instance, an auxiliary type of presence. They can provide a civilian intelligence sort of presence or so, eyes on the ground or so um, uh, that can liaise back. Uh, but also in these sorts of situations, um, you don't want to be building the plane while flying it. That is to say, uh, this is a this is a scenario that would have been long rehearsed by British authorities, and so often your own people are the best people to uh, to work with. Uh, because they know your procedures, they know your legal constraints, um, they know the way you communicate. And so much of it here is really about building out your headquarters capacity so that you have um, in, in, in this particular context, um, eyes and ears on the ground um, across uh, not just London, but the United Kingdom uh, with your borders, trying to understand who's coming into the country um, and being able to deploy your assets in an effective uh, way. So the biggest challenge here will be not just the people you need to have a search capacity on the streets, but you'll also want to make sure that you can intervene with prospective threats um, and send teams out doing being able to investigate possible uh, threats identified by intelligence services while at the same time continuing your planning for the event. So that's really sort of where the uh, where there's the greatest challenge in terms of how you coordinate the scarce resources that you have. From what I understand, there's probably two layers, if you will, going on right now. One of them is in your face. Like if you arrived in London at Heathrow right now, the security at the airport would be much much different than it was two weeks ago. Same thing if you went to a train station. There's just an increased security presence within the UK right now. Is, is that what you would expect? Yeah, so I traveled through Heathrow yesterday, and okay. yes, the lines were long, um, but um, it, it, there wasn't, uh, it, it didn't look like there was a massive sort of security operation per se 
underway. But certainly in this sort of circumstance, you want to have a visible presence yeah. because a visible presence itself will have a deterrent effect on individuals. But that's where you want to be working with your partners. So, for instance, people who are there'll be a lot of people coming into the country um, over sort of the next few days. And so you want to have visibility on people that you might not be knowing a lot about, but that, for instance, might be on the radar of, say, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, uh, where CSIS might be able to share certain types of awareness about individuals that uh, British authorities might want to question um, upon arrival in the United Kingdom about uh, about their their intentions in the United Kingdom. Um, those sorts of types of information exchange, um, um, that would be a, a considerable help to British authorities. But much of the work, of course, is behind the scenes yeah. because ultimately um, this is all about risk mitigation. It's about prevention. It's about interdiction. And that means on the front end detection of any challenges um, that, uh, that that there might be to a peaceful unfolding of this event. So that, like you say, behind the scenes right now, um, all kinds of intelligence work, like checking out anybody who is on the radar as maybe somebody who might try and use an instance like this to cause trouble, knowing exactly where they are and what they're up to, and maybe even having eyes on them. Could it go that far? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Yeah, it's really about intelligence integration, right? We saw this in 9-11. It's not like the 9-11 bombers and sort of uh, wasn't known as the 9-11 report showed there were a number of failings of different agencies to share the right intelligence at the right time to be able to put together that large puzzle. And so being able to integrate those many sources of intelligence is, of course, when you have that many people coming in for this type of an event, you're going to have a surge of intelligence reporting. Um, so having your integrated cell that can then parse that intelligence, integrate it effectively, understand what to action and how to action it, um, that's really the critical decisions. And that's where you require considerable experience on the one hand, uh, which the United Kingdom and UK authorities have, um, a considerable network as the United Kingdom has in particular with Five Eyes countries, but also with uh, European and some of the Commonwealth partners, um, and the capacity to then be able to integrate that effectively because the intelligence isn't worth much um, if you can't integrate it in a way that makes it actionable. But at the same time, you need to ensure that it's all action within the rule of law and within the constitutional protections uh, of people's human rights and of people's privacy. Uh, last one, and then I'll let you go. Uh, watching some of this footage with King Charles, Will and Kate, Harry and Meghan, just wandering out amongst tens of thousands of people, walking into crowds, shaking hands, that's got to be, if you're in charge of their security, that's got to be an absolute nightmare, isn't it? 
Yeah, so that's a great question to ask. And it also brings us back, for instance, to perhaps the Christia Freeland incident recently in Canada. Politicians and these sort of uh, highly exposed figures, we also want to give them a certain amount of agency. Unlike authoritarian regimes where leaders don't mingle with the public, in a democracy, leaders often take great pride in the fact that they mingle with the very people that either elected them or that in this case they represent, that they don't want to be seen as having to be protected from those very people. And so Striking that balance, Jean Chrétien was famous, for instance, when he was prime minister, of not wanting to have lots of mounty detail around him, that he wanted them to stand back so that he could interact with the people, which requires a lot more work by the security services on the front end to make sure that they can provide a safe environment in which people can then interact uh, with the public. Not to get too nitty-gritty, like, how do they do it? I don't see them. I mean, I I just see Will and Kate talking to people. Like, where is the security? And that's what good security should be doing in a democracy, (laughs) where they can stand back, they can blend in, but you have constant eyes and ears. And you will see when they're out in the public, they'll always be out in a situation where you, for instance, have people with binoculars up on the roofs. You you can scan the crowd and you can detect a threat coming before they're ever able to approach. And then the civilians uh, that you've embedded in the crowd can intervene with that individual in order to keep uh, the highly exposed political person safe. Yeah, it really is amazing. Christian, thank you so much for walking us through it. I appreciate it. If you're a regular listener to this show, you know the rule. We do not talk about COVID on here unless there's something to talk about and uh, something that we haven't already talked about a lot and usually fight over, right? Uh, But there's been some interesting developments this week that do warrant some discussion. The World Health Organization, I got to say, sounded more optimistic than I can ever remember them sounding when they made an announcement on Wednesday saying we are closer to this thing being over than we ever have been before. Not saying it is over, but we're closer to it being over than it ever has been before. Uh, things going in the right direction globally. That's very good news. Also this week, some data out of uh, BC uh, and some other places as well, showing that Canadians have had COVID at some point in terms of the majority of Canadians have, um, especially younger Canadians, which is another positive indicator for the future. Let's find out why. We're going to chat now with Dr. Timothy Evans, who is the Executive Director of the COVID-19 Immunity Task Force. Dr. Evans, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Shay. So I mentioned the BC data from earlier this week, but there's been other examples just this week, really, uh, and recently, showing that, in fact, most Canadians, we understand at this point, have had COVID, correct? Well, uh, I think uh, we need to qualify that okay. um, uh, in so far as uh, prior to the Omicron wave, which started in December, uh, only a small minority of Canadians had been infected with uh, SARS-CoV-2. Um, in fact, probably 10% uh, across the country. Uh, but since that time, uh, in the context of this Omicron wave, which has been much more infectious and uh, had an ability to escape uh, uh, immune um, uh, detection by the vaccines, uh, that we've seen uh, close to 50% of the Canadian population infected as of, uh, as of July 15th. Uh, our latest data. So, yes, um, uh, that probably means, yes, the majority of Canadians since the beginning of the pandemic 
uh, a small majority, meaning somewhere around 60 percent, have have um, been infected with the virus. So what does that mean for us going forward? Of course, everybody says, we'll see what happens in the fall. We know that's typically when cases start to spike. Given where we are in terms of the majority of Canadians now having had COVID, at least that's our assumption, um, what does that tell us about where we're headed with COVID, generally speaking? Well, uh, first, it's really important uh, to recognize that the uh, infection has not been distributed equally uh, across the, the population. So one of the things that we see is that uh, younger people have been much more infected, uh, especially during the Omicron wave, than older people. And it just so happens that younger people have had much lower rates of vaccination. Older people have had the highest rates of vaccination and have been incredibly vigilant. So when we look at the population over 70, uh, we still have... um, uh, the majority of people, uh, who, majority of people over 70 who, um, uh, have not been infected. And, and if we look at the total number of people across Canada, uh, that haven't been infected to date, it's about 14 million. So that's about, uh, 35, 40% of the population. So one of the things that's extremely important for, you know, almost 40% of our population is that they remain vigilant and avoid infection if they can. Yeah. Um, and we know how to do that, but uh, it's just so important to recognize that uh, if you can maintain your immunity through vaccination, which we are, we've got new boosters out, which uh, have some sensitivity to Omicron, uh, that's a much better option uh, than getting infected. And so that's the first message on moving forward. We have a large population who've been amazing uh, in terms of uh, uh, avoiding getting infected. Um, we need to help them continue to remain uninfected and to have their immunity through vaccination. The data shows that young people, um, the numbers go way up when you're talking about younger Canadians in terms of rates of infection, right? Does that surprise you? And what does that tell us? Well, it, it doesn't in some respects, uh, insofar as, uh, first, um, uh, we've only, uh, recently started to roll out vaccines in that population. Um, so they were the last to get vaccines. And secondly, um, I think that, uh, those, uh, you know, when you look at, uh, younger kids, um, their proclivity to engage in congregate settings, uh, particularly around schools, but also their recreational activities are such that um, transmission of respiratory viruses is much, much, much more difficult. And that's why we see in young kids um, all of the seasonal viruses and the colds that spread like wildfire yeah. in daycare and schools. So in some respects, uh, they have higher risk for transmission. And uh, what we've seen, particularly during the Omicron wave, um, which is very, very infectious, uh, that the rates of infection in children have gone up to as much as uh, two-thirds to 70% of children being infected. Yeah, interesting. Uh, We'll see where we go from here. Doctor, thank you so much for your time this morning. I really do appreciate you joining us. All right, switching gears now completely. Uh, you may remember earlier this summer, I'm not sure exactly how long ago it was, we talked about this um, 
legally required Health Canada review of how the legalization of cannabis is going in our country. When we legalized cannabis in 2018, October of 2018, so just shy of... um Four years ago, like three years and 11 months almost to the day, part of the requirement was um, at three years, we need to do a, a review. That's part of it. Hasn't happened. And we're now almost a full year past that deadline of when it was supposed to happen by. So um, there are some indications that it may be on the horizon, though. It may actually be about to take place, as I say, almost one year to the day later than it was supposed to. So let's find out what's going on. We're going to tra- talk now with uh, George Smitherman, who is the president and CEO of the Producer Advocacy Group, the Cannabis Council of Canada. George, thanks for joining us again. I appreciate your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Good morning, Edmonton. Okay, so, uh, and Calgary, and well, all of Alberta, as a matter of fact. Oh, sorry, yes, of course, of course. <laughs> um, now, this, all of Alberta. This review, as I say, has been promised for a long time. We've been expecting it for a while. Hasn't happened. Um, what do you know? Because I, I still haven't seen it confirmed. Uh, do you know for sure that it's imminent and happening any day now? Well, what I do know is that had Queen Elizabeth uh, sadly not uh, passed, it would have been announced this uh, this week in Toronto, and the government has scheduled, at least confirmed for me verbally, that they will be finally uh, initiating the statutory review on September the 22nd in the nation's capital. Okay. And I'm intending to be there. Excellent. Now, what's the process? Do you know? Is it, is it public hearings? Is it, uh, how, how does it work? How do they go about doing this, um, you know, review? There are various approaches that they can take, and we've talked about a variety of them, and there's been no clear signal set yet. The only messages that I've been hearing from the government are that the scope will be fairly broad because many of us were concerned that it was going to kind of not provide an opportunity to talk about some of the real pressing challenges. Yep. So they've signaled that the scope will uh, will be broad and that where necessary, the minister will act on what he hears promptly but those are just verbal commitments so we'll have to see what means they wish to use for the review consultation that travels around or just online specialized uh, group of reviewers independent reviewers submitting a report we haven't really been given any insight on that basis as yet okay the pressing issues we'll get to in a moment but let's go back to what this review was designed to do what was talked about when it was put into the legislation that we will conduct this review what is it supposed to be looking at what's the what's the purpose of it Well, the purpose of it, as set out in the legislation, uh, is to ensure that the uh, Act is acting as it was intended to. So it's to look at the operation of the the, uh, implications of the operation of the Act with a particular look at uh, some communities of interest, such as Aboriginal communities, and with a look at the overall impact on the public health objectives, which include keeping cannabis out of the hands of youth, uh, getting cannabis consumers to be consuming safe and tested products, and uh, eliminating the participation of the illicit and criminal uh, markets in the cannabis sector. Now, 
that gets to be interpretive, whether that means narrow or broad. But it seemed like the legal beagles uh, up at Health Canada were kind of saying, oh, well, this is a very, very narrow scope. And for a long time now in the industry, we've been saying, well, there's a lot of pent-up demand and expectation to be talking about quite a wide variety of challenges. So you'd be well, you know, well, it would be well to observe a broader scope. So it seems like perhaps they've taken that to heart, but you know, the proof is in the pudding, as they say. Now I've seen some, and I understand why uh, people saying the reason it's been delayed is because a lot of the arguments that the government made for taking this step, as you mentioned, keeping it out of the hands of kids, um, getting the black market out of this, getting rid of organized crime and marijuana hasn't really panned out the way that they hoped it would would. And that's why we haven't seen the review brought around quite as quickly. Do you put any stock in that? Well, the thing is, I can't speculate about why it hasn't happened so far, but I actually would say, like, on some of the things that you mentioned, like, for instance, all the public data that I've seen with respect to youth participation in cannabis seems quite positive insofar as, no, uh, if anything, a delayed uptake amongst Canadian use of uh, cannabis, etc. So some aspects of that public health evaluation seem to be going okay, but when you look at it overall, a lot of the business is still be done, being done in the illicit market. So overall, you have to say that's a public health objective that seems to be coming up somewhat short. But none of that excuses getting on with the sure. review. And frankly, one of the things, like you know, from a from from the standpoint of the sector, and not just the regulated producers that I represent, but retailers as well, especially across the country in the provinces where you have private retail, really, really squeezed out by the rates of taxation and fees that the various governments are taking. So we're really hoping that the review will at least provide a platform to raise more of those issues about the fundamental fairness of the tax and fees model. So that's more, you know, as we've moved now almost four years past legalization, it's evolved, and those are the issues that you think should be brought forward. That's what you're hoping to hear about? There's a lot of issues, but, you know, the financial viability of the sector is a real and pressing challenge. Uh, big or small, no matter whether you're operating in one province or several, there's hardly any operators that are finding a cash flow positive experience. And that's not a good sign. In other jurisdictions like California, they've recently recalibrated their tax because a very similar circumstance was occurring. They eliminated taxes at the cultivation level. The thing is, just to kind of make it simpler, you know, simple for the, for the listeners is that when the cannabis legalization was proposed, the premise was that cannabis was going to be ten bucks a gram, uh, ten dollars a gram, and therefore a one dollar tax or ten percent was reasonable. The thing is, we got the one dollar, but instead of the ten dollar cannabis, we've got three dollar cannabis. So the tax is coming in at thirty, thirty five percent instead of ten, and it's really having the effect of making our squeezing out our license holders, and frankly, making it really difficult to compete on price with that very well-entrenched, illicit, or legacy market. Hey, I was a consumer of cannabis before it was legal. I had a relationship with somebody that I would consider a friend that was supplied me with 
regular product. Mm -hmm. Well, I had to, that was a significant shift for me to make that break and to change and to change relationships. And I think it's important for people to understand is that there are a lot of, you know, there are, that it's not like when, it, when cannabis became legal, all of a sudden, a hundred percent of consumers automatically gravitated over there. We have to win that battle one consumer at a time. And if you're not competitive or at least somewhat closer to competitive on price, it makes the prospect of success quite limited. But that's not the only issue we face. But that's certainly the financial viability of the sector is certainly kind of the underlying foundation for all discussions these days. It's very difficult out there. George, when we talk about, you know, some of the things that you're talking about, the government may or may not address. But one thing we do know is regardless of how they handle it, it'll take time. Government moves so slowly. The fact that we're a year behind on this review, and I don't know what it's not going to they're not going to have this review and the next day things are going to change. I mean, what are we missing out on by the fact that we're a year behind already and now we're just starting on this review and who knows how long it's going to take? I mean, some of these issues are pretty pressing, are they not? Yeah, really. I try to say that my job these days is to try and build influence so that our industry can demand kind of or, 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 or create an understanding about the urgency for action. Yeah, yeah. And that really is a, that really is a dilemma, obviously, with a pro, with the process being delayed and the process in its own right. If you follow it sequentially, it starts with an 18-month period of report writing. Those reports are then sent on to Parliament and the Senate, who can consider them at committee and perhaps make recommendations, and action could follow. Well, that's three or four years. Yeah, exactly. At least, one, at least one very, very interesting election uh, in the midst of all of that. And the likely prospects of survival for very many companies grim. So I've been really trying to, you know, reinforce the necessity of urgency. And that's why I said off the top, one of the signals that's been sent to me by the minister's office staff is, yes, we understand that some things require more urgent action, and we're prepared to take those out of the queue, so to speak. Like I said, proof is in the pudding, but that was a hopeful message for the government and one that our industry needs to hear, because it's a pretty tough environment out there. Absolutely. George, thanks so much for the insight. As always, really appreciate your time. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.